we are going to be looking at the false prophet today. And the false prophet is one who acts much like the Holy Spirit. We're going to have a counterfeit trinity that we're going to see. Satan is like a counterfeit father. We have the Antichrist as a counterfeit Christ, of course. But the false prophet is very much indeed like a false Holy Spirit. Remember Bob's message that he did a couple of years ago. As I mentioned earlier, he did a message on how to discern a work of the Spirit. And recall that the work of the Holy Spirit is to bring the confession of Jesus Christ you're going to see the same thing is true of the Holy, or excuse me, not the Holy Spirit, of, but the false prophet. The false prophet is going to try to bring people to confess the Antichrist and not Christ. One thing that I want you to keep in mind, that is if we go into the last seven years of Daniel, the 70th week, the last seven years we're going to have in history, we will see that there are many false prophets that culminate in the false prophet. But what's interesting is during the church age that we live in now, you and I can be very confident that there are no true prophets. Why? Because with the ending of the apostles, you have no apostles or prophets today. But yet there are still going to be false prophets and false teachers that we have to judge correctly that their doctrine is false. And so that's, I think, the big takeaway that we're going to learn from today. So with that, let me turn to the first verses here, verses 11 through 12, where we see the rise of the false prophet. John wrote this. He says, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, And he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. Now, dear ones, notice here, John begins by saying, I saw. Does everyone see that in the beginning? Well, John often gives us the I saw to kind of show us that the movie, if you think about a movie, you're going from one scene to another. So the scene that he's been in began back in Revelation 12. So in the Greek, you see, I don't. And I always remember, I done, when I learned Greek, means I saw. Because I always, to, for me to remember things, I have to have a catch, catchy way of doing it. I always thought of a southerner who says, I done saw that. Right? So when you see I done in, in Greek, he done saw that, that means you're going on now to a new scene. And what did he see? Well, he saw this vision of another beast The Greek there for another is alos. Now, there's two choices John had to make. He could have said heteros, which means another of a different kind, but he chose alos, which means another of the same kind. And so we can see then that this beast who comes up out of the earth is of the same ilk of that of the beast that came out of the sea, the Antichrist. Okay? In essence, they're on the same team. I think that that would be a fair way of rendering it. Now, notice, what's the description here of this beast that comes up out of the earth? Well, first of all, he comes up out of the earth, and I'll talk about that in a moment. But notice he has two horns like a lamb. Does everyone see that in the text? Well, I think one of the things this may contrast are the two witnesses that we had back in Revelation 11. And one of the reasons I think the contrast is probably there is, remember, the two witnesses that are speaking for God, they call fire. Well, you're going to see the false prophet calls fire. Okay, so there may be a counterfeit going on here. We also see that he is not the true lamb. Back in Revelation 5, 6, the true lamb of God had seven horns. Now, why would the lamb of God, Jesus, have seven horns and this one not? It probably doesn't really matter what number he has, but it's not seven. Exactly. The number seven often has to do with completion. We have the seven days of creation. We have the sevenfold spirit. It's exactly right, Levon. So the idea of completion. So Jesus is the complete one. He's God. But this one is less than him. He's not from God. Also, we saw that the Antichrist had 10 horns that were going to reign with him. So obviously, this is distinguishing also this false prophet from the Antichrist as well. Now, one of the questions is, well, who is this false prophet? What's very interesting is throughout history... The church has come up with different answers, and I think some of them are kind of deficient. One of them would be through what's called the historical interpretation. Now, remember, the people who are called themselves historists, they see Revelation as unfolding during the church age. Now, what do we believe that the the time period is for the book of Revelation from chapter 4 to 22? Well, we believe it's confined to the 70th week of Daniel. Now, for those who believe that all of these things are unfolding during church history... 
They believed the false prophet was papal Rome. Okay, it was Rome and the Pope specifically. Now, by the way, because the Protestants picked on the Pope so much, and rightly so, he was an antichrist and a false prophet, certainly true. What happened was the reaction against that by the Roman Catholics was what? It was preterism. So what the Catholics did, they said, okay, you reformers are going to put all of these things in church history. We'll say it all happened in 70 AD. Therefore, can't, the Antichrist, the false prophet, can't be related to the Pope. Now, here's what I want you to consider. How many people in the Reformed tradition today hold to preterism? Well, that's a Roman Catholic doctrine. Okay? So talking about going back to Rome. All right? So don't go to preterism uh, if you're Reformed and think that that's somehow you're more Reformed than the next. No, you're going back to a Roman doctrine, a Roman Catholic doctrine that was used to refute the Protestant reformers. Now, preterists, what about preterists who believe that everything was fulfilled in 70 AD? Well, they would see this false prophet as an embodiment of the Caesar cultic priest, that is the priest who would demand people worship Caesar rather than the true God. Now, in both cases, I want you to think about this for just a moment. How do we know that the historists are wrong, that this is not this false prophet, the papal Rome? And how do we know that the preterists are wrong, that this is not the priest that made people worship Caesar? Well, there's two ways we know. Number one, he's called a false prophet, singular. So there's been many popes, and there were many priests that worked to lead people to Caesar and to worship him. But this is the false prophet, singular. That's what he's going to be called in Revelation 16, 13, Revelation 19, 10, or excuse me, Revelation 19, 20, and Revelation 20, 10. Okay, so he's the false prophet. And what's more, when you get to Revelation chapter 20, he's going to be thrown into the lake of fire. Now, here's the point. You don't have an institution in the Bible like the papal authority, or you don't have an institution like the cultic priests that work for Rome. The institutions aren't thrown into the lake of fire. Individuals are. Are you with me? So this is an individual. So we can't say, well, it's just the long line of popes, generically. It's not. It's an individual. And why could we distinguish one pope from another? You can't. So therefore, this is really the embodiment of all pro false prophets that have gone before in one individual, and they're eventually going to be thrown into the lake of fire. Yeah, Levon, in fact, hold on. We're going to get you on. Um, oh, Bob, maybe we can use that mic there. We'll get you on the... But couldn't it still be a future pope? I mean, oh, I see what you're saying. They sure. they are working towards the one world religion. They're doing yeah. everything they can to take control of the world. Great point. You're right. We it could be maybe a future pope that is being used as the individual false prophet. Exactly right. The thing that I want to steer you away from is thinking that this is just generically a um, an office. Okay, as the reformers would say, it's the office of the papal authority. It's not an office, it's actually a person, but you're right. We don't know who that person will be, and it's very well could be an actual pope who becomes the false prophet. And, and it wouldn't surprise me a lot either. So, right, well said. <laughs> yeah, very well said. Thank you. Yeah, exactly. Well said. Thank you, Lavone. So, what's that? Uh, yeah, exactly. We don't know. Right, we don't know. And Certainly, this pope has an affinity towards Marxism and uh, certainly is a Jesuit. Yeah, there's a lot of bad things about this, this pope, absolutely. <laughs> now, now, the other thing is, notice here, he's the, he's the beast that comes up out of the earth. Where did the last beast come from? What was the source? It was the sea, okay? Now, let me tell you a little story about some interpretive dialogue that I was into. Back in Revelation 6, do you remember... In the fourth seal, you had a judgment with sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts. There is a movement today called the pre-wrath movement that tries to claim that those beasts are, in fact, the Antichrist and the false prophet. But what's very interesting is when you look in Revelation 6, it's beasts of the earth. Well, where's the Antichrist from? He's from the sea. And the reason why that's significant is because he has priority in the relationship between the false prophet and the beast, the Antichrist. So the point is, is for sure, the beasts in Revelation 6 are wild beasts of the earth. They're not the Antichrist and the false prophet. And one thing you have to realize is that the ancients distinguished between beasts that came out of the sea 
and beasts that came out of the earth. To them, beasts that came out of the sea were much more formidable. And, you know, it's not unreasonable to think that way. Think about how much larger you have as beasts of the sea. Look at whales, etc. They're much heavier than beasts on the earth. So they thought them as much more formidable, but that does not negate the power of this false prophet. He is going to point people, though, and their attention towards the false Christ. That's the point. In fact, notice here the pseudo-work of this false prophet. It says, and he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship what? The first beast. Now, what does that remind you of? It reminds you of the work of the Holy Spirit. Again, back to Bob's message that he did a couple of years ago, he showed us that the primary role of the Holy Spirit is to bring us to confession of Christ. Okay? Well, now the false prophet is bringing people to confess Antichrist. In fact, uh, Jen, you have a passage. Uh, Eric, we'll bring up maybe the microphone to Jen here. We're going to turn our Bibles to John 15, 26 through 27. And hold on one second. I'm sorry, Jen. I'm just going to have everyone turn their Bibles to John 15, 26 through 27. I just want to remind you the work of the Holy Spirit. And then you can kind of see here we have a counterfeit going on, a pseudo work by the false prophet. So I'm sorry. I think most people are turned there or close. So go ahead. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me, and you will testify also, because you have been with me from the beginning. Thank you. I think testify, Bob, it wasn't it martureo, to witness or to testify. I think that's the verb that's being used there. And so the idea then is the Holy Spirit brings about people testifying of Jesus Christ, and also, obviously, his worship. Well, you have really the same thing here. Now you have the false prophet leading people to testify or worship the false Christ. Okay, so you have a pseudo-work that's obviously going on. Now, as we continue on, we see that the false prophet has lying signs and wonders in verses 13 through 14. It says that he performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. Now notice these great signs. We see that one of the great signs that the false prophet makes or has come about is that he makes fire come down out of heaven. Now what's interesting is that's often a true work of God when prophets of old would call fire down. And I want to do a little review and show you that. Uh, Moses, for example, and Moses, he, of course, the mediator of the Old Covenant, the prophet par excellence. In Exodus chapter 9, he had fire come down, didn't he? And so we see that this was often used by true prophets of God. Elijah in 1 Kings 18, remember he says the God that answers by fire, he's the true God with the false prophets of Baal. He calls fire down. Uh, we have God answering David. David had repented. Remember, he had had that wicked census in First Chronicles 21. We see that he repents, and he purchases a threshing floor in which the temple is going to be built, and God answers by what? By fire, showing that there was favor. Solomon, David's son, he is going to dedicate the temple, and God answers with his Shekinah glory and what? Fire coming down to show approval. You have the two witnesses in Revelation 11, we saw that they called fire. So oftentimes, God shows through the true prophets by calling fire down. Well, here, you're going to have this pseudo work by the false prophet. And he's going to call down fire. And so what's necessary then for those who dwell on the earth is to realize that doctrinally, even though this is a miraculous work, this is not a true prophet. But notice who is going to be deceived. Verse 14, it's those who dwell on the earth. Does everyone see that highlighted in red? Those who dwell on the earth. That phrase is used eight times in the book of Revelation. Let me list them out, by the way. If anyone wants to write them down, I thought about this, I should probably list them out for you. The phrase, those who dwell upon the earth, you can find that phrase in Revelation 3.10, Revelation 6.10, Revelation 8.13, Revelation 11.10, it's twice in that, so that's five usages. Revelation 13.8, and then here twice in Revelation 
14. So that's eight usages of those who dwell on the earth. And every single time, it refers to those who are the unregenerate. So what's very interesting is the deception is, of course, going to work, but it's not for God's elect. Who is deceived but those who are unregenerate? They will be wowed by the sign, and being illiterate of true doctrine, they will fall hook, line, and sinker for a false prophet who leads them to a false Christ. Very, very sad indeed. Now, also notice that the role of this false prophet is that people would make an image of the beast. So this is the grand form of idolatry. Remember, the Lord commands that we're not to make any graven image, right? And so here you have the command to make a graven image. They're going to be making idols of the beast, and so you have just rampant idolatry. Now, dear ones, look at the world today. Would it surprise you that en masse, those who dwell upon the earth who are unregenerate will delve into idolatry, hook, line, and sinker? Well, no, because they're doing it now, right? They may not be building always statues, etc., but they're involved with idolatry. Well, that is going to be on steroids within the 70th week of Daniel. Okay, it's very, very sad. Now, one thing I want to talk about are these false Christs and prophets. And it's my contention that when we look at the Olivet Discourse, the Olivet Discourse talks about false Christs and false prophets. But my claim is that all of those false prophets and Christs are within the 70th week. Okay, it's not during the church age. And I want to show you some evidence of that, and then we'll make some other implications from this text. Remember what Christ said here. This is Matthew 24, 24. And again, I'm claiming that Jesus is talking about the same time period that we're studying in the book of Revelation. Matthew 24, 24, he says, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Now, here's what I want you to consider for just a moment. In the 70th week of Daniel, which I think is what Jesus is referring to, he's talking about plural false Christs and false prophets. Well, we really see two being singled out namely the beast and the false prophet. But remember, there are also ten horns that are reigning with the Antichrist during this time period. Now, we don't have data talked about in the book of Revelation as to what they do, but I don't think we should say, well, Jesus must be talking about some different time period. I think the evidence is so compelling that he's talking specifically about the 70th week that we have to conclude that that is going to be a time period characterized by false prophets and false Christ, but they will culminate in the false Christ and the false prophet, okay? Now, let me show you some other corroboration for this, and I want you to see it out of 2 Thessalonians, and I'll explain why I'm showing you this passage in just a moment. This is what Paul wrote, 2 Thessalonians 2, 8 through 10. I believe he's talking about the same thing that we're reading about, namely the Antichrist, being the lawless one. Obviously, we're focusing on the false prophet today, but we looked at the false Christ last week. Paul says, 2 Thessalonians 2, 8 through 10, he says, Then that lawless one, that's the Antichrist, will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. Now, stop there for just a moment. I want to mention something. Notice in verse 8, immediately after the Antichrist is introduced there, his destruction is alluded to. You see that as a theme throughout the book of Revelation and First and Second Thessalonians. When the Antichrist is alluded to, his destruction is alluded to. So the biblical authors are always very clear that, look, this one's going to destruction. So don't fear him. Who should you fear, Antichrist or Christ? Well, you fear Christ. Okay? Therefore, who should you be prepared to come? Prepare for Christ coming. We're to fear God alone. Antichrist is a mortal. Antichrist is one who is not to be feared. We fear Christ alone. And so his destruction is always alluded to. Now, as we continue... In verse 9, he says, That is, the one who's coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power in signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, that's those who dwell on the earth, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. So you can see the parallels. And I also want you to see that Jesus talked about the false Christ and false prophets doing what? Great signs and wonders. What does the false Christ do? Well, he does all power in signs and and false wonders. Now, one of the reasons why we know the Apostle Paul is teaching the same thing that Jesus is teaching, but he's focusing on the false Christ, 
is because in 1 Thessalonians 5 and also in 2 Thessalonians 2, the Apostle Paul takes 11 terms directly from the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. Now, why is that important? It shows us that the Apostle Paul's eschatology is driven and taken from the Olivet Discourse. His eschatology is identical to Jesus Christ's eschatology. So that shows us that the primary teaching on the end times is really the Olivet Discourse, and the Apostle Paul was deriving much of his data right from that. So certainly then, Jesus and the Apostle Paul are teaching about the same time period, not, this, not a different one. Yeah, Eric. Just I want to make sure I understand the timeline yeah. here. Um, okay, the believers, those of us who are born from above, we will be gone at that point. Yeah. And so in Matthew 24, Jesus is talking to the Jewish people, and there are elect Jewish people. In other words, so as mis to mislead, if possible, even the elect, he's referring to the Jewish people who are still left, and that some of them will be deceived, and some of them will not be deceived. Exactly And then right. Paul is really echoing the same, the same thing. And in First and Second Thessalonians, Paul talks about that's where the rapture, one of the places, one of the several places, the rapture of the saints. So just so we all, I, I think we're all on the same page that, yeah. that the Christians, the believers will be gone at this point. Well said. And uh, proof, further proof to what you just said, Eric, is what gives us an indication that Jesus is talking primarily, he's talking to all of us. All of us apply this passage in that we see God is faithful to his promises. And that motivates us for godly living now. We know that God is faithful. That's wonderful news. So it's not that it doesn't apply. It's how it applies. But you're certainly right. It applies differently to the audience that will be experiencing these things. And we know that's a Jewish-centric audience. The reason why is recall from verse 8 of Matthew 24 all the way to verse 14, Jesus gives us a purview of the entire seven years, the 70th week of Daniel. But in verse 15, by way of recapitulation, he says, he goes back to the midpoint, the great tribulation, and he says, so when you see the abomination that causes desolation, those who are in Judea should flee to the mountains. And again, I don't mean to bring this up again, but my whole point was how would we apply that as Gentiles? Where do you flee? Um, in Minnesota, we have Buck Hill and Spirit Mountain. That's about it, right? So the point is it's obviously Jewish-centric. And so that's going to be the audience that was going to practically have to heed these warnings and exactly right. And you make a, also a good point. I want to focus here for a moment, if you will, dear ones, in Matthew 24, 24, where he says it's to mislead, if possible, even the elect. The term, if possible, a donanatone, literally means what it says. If it were possible. What that implies is it's not possible. And what that shows us then is that if you are one of the elect, and I'll talk about that in our sermon today, God will enable you to persevere. By hook or by crook, God by his spirit is going to enable his elect to persevere. Now, one distinction I want to make, when I was a young man, a new Christian, I would always hang my hat on something called eternal security. And I'm not denying that. We have eternal security. But the term that I like better is the perseverance of the saints. And the reason I like perseverance of the saints better is because the way in which God gives eternal security is that he keeps his elect in the faith. So notice these false signs and wonders. They will not be effective in leading the elect astray. Why? Because they know their doctrine. They'll see these grand signs. But they'll know from the word of God, God uses means. And they will say, well, yes, these are signs and wonders, but they're false ones. They're leading away from the true God, and they won't be led astray. So, dear ones, this is wonderful news. It is not possible to lead the elect astray. Did you have anything to add, Bob? I have a question. Oh, yeah. Although I think I know the answer. Um, <laughs> when we're saying that this Jewish-centric, yeah. which is true based on Daniel, yeah, exactly. Matthew, does that mean no Gentile can be saved during that period? No, and I thank you for raising that. Yeah, when I, yeah when I we're think, not saying that. Exactly, we're not saying that at all. What we're just saying is when Jesus is addressing this, he's addressing the Olivet Discourse to a primarily Jewish audience who is going to have to survive during the Great Tribulation period. But during that same period, 
there are Gentiles who are going to come to faith as well. And they'll also have to heed the warnings that they see here, not because they're in Israel, but because they also know that the worldwide persecution is something that God has ordained and that when Christ comes, will be overcome. In fact, when we get to Revelation 16, I'll show you a parenthetical comment that Christ himself gives to the church so that we, those who come to faith during that time period, will persevere when they see all these things. It's very, very beautiful how Christ keeps his flock and encourages them during this time period. So thank you. Yeah, Gentiles will still be saved. In fact, you have an angel that proclaims the everlasting gospel over the whole earth. So not only do you have human messengers that are proclaiming the gospel, but God is even going to use an angel for evangelism. Now, that's quite a message, isn't it? Can you imagine? Yeah. Yeah, and the reason that's important is our critics will say, well, you can't even talk about this because if you have your rapture, then there's no Christians. Oh, right, yeah. And if there's no Christians, then all these warnings are to nobody. Right. What I said in response is that we believe the church as it is now was born on the day of Pentecost. Yeah, amen. Well, how long did it take for there to be a church after Jesus' ascension? Right. It's like that. Immediately. Right. And look at Acts. Immediately. Right. There's a church, there's a gospel, and Jesus, right after he ascended to heaven. That's right. So how long is it going to take after the rapture for there to be a church? Exactly right. My thinking is not too long because some people go, are going to say, oh, man, right. those Christians were right. Right, right. Well said. And we have further evidence in, in the resurrection, the first resurrection in Revelation chapter 20. I'm thinking of the, think about the first eight verses. It does talk about how those who were beheaded because of their testimony in Jesus Christ are going to be raised. So those who had a testimony and who believed in the word of Christ they're going to be raised from the dead. Well, when did they come to faith? Well, it was during that 70th week. And so we have direct evidence that there are people who are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. So the, there will be a church, as Bob has said, within the 70th week. It's just not the one that was before the 70th week. And that's why I think our proper response is when we look at the Olivet Discourse, it's not that it doesn't apply to us now. It's how it applies. And what I'm saying is in Scripture, when we look at a passage, for example, Paul says in Romans that the Old Testament was written for an, as an example to us. Okay, well, were you and I there when the Old Testament occurred? No. Well, therefore, how someone might ask, is that relevant? Well, because it's an example to us. Now, we are looking ahead to examples to us, and we're also looking to the fact that God is faithful to all of his promises. To me, one of the most important applications is to see that God is faithful. Just as he said in the book of Daniel that there's going to be a false Christ who comes up and yet the true Christ would put him down at the end of his reign, to me that's very reassuring to see evidence in the New Testament that this indeed will come, come to pass, just as the Old Testament prophets had foretold. So, dear ones, remember, we are big here at Gospel of Grace saying salvation is about what God has done for us, not what we do for God. Okay? So the scriptures, by encouraging us in the promises of God, we realize he's faithful. He's going to do it all, just as he said. Therefore, we can rest in him. And so that's how I think the Olivet Discourse primarily applies to us. Okay? All right. Now, the uh, okay, so we talk about, yeah, if possible, it's not possible to lead the elect astray. Now, the one thing I want to talk about now is I want to talk about false prophecy. And again, my contention is that these false Christs and false prophets are specifically going to be within the 70th week, but that does not preclude false prophets and false Christs to coming about during the church age. So I want to talk about the battle of the prophets. If you think about, in a sense, church history and all of God's people, their history is defined by the question, who speaks for God? There's always a true spokesman for God in the apostles and prophets, and there's always a false one. So let's talk a little bit about prophecy, and I want to begin by talking about what is a prophet. The term for prophet in Hebrew, it sounds like it says, I just transliterated in English, navi. And the interesting thing is to define what Navi means. What's the etymology of that term prophet? The term in Greek, by the way, is prophetes. That's the prophet. But in Hebrew, it's Navi. Well, what's interesting is when you look at the etymology, some believe that the etymology of Navi is an Arabic term, Nava, which means to announce. And that would certainly make sense. You have the prophets announcing the plans of God 
they both foretell and foretell what God requires. There's others that say, no, it comes from a Hebrew term, navah, which means to bubble up. And this would show us not an ecstatic understanding of the prophet that he just bubbles up uncontrollably, but rather he is the fountain whose source is God. And therefore, he speaks forward the words of God. It would be that sort of idea. Still others think that the etymology is an Akkadian term, Navu, which means to call. That is, a prophet is a called one. Now, which is probably closer to the truth? Well, I don't know. <laughs> it's always hard with etymology to find out where these terms came from. But the big issue is how is prophet used in the Old Testament and then into the New? And here's the definition I think we should all have. A prophet is an authorized spokesman for God. Okay, who is an apostle? An authorized spokesman for God. They speak the very words of God so that as they speak, they are a stand-in for God himself. Not because they're somehow more holy than any other person, but because God has chosen them to be his spokesperson. Okay? Now, what's interesting is when you start looking at the first prophets, I want to contrast God's true prophets with false prophets. What's very interesting, the very first prophet on the scene of history was actually Abraham. He was called a prophet in Genesis chapter 20 with the Abimelech uh, episode. And I want you to think about how powerful that is. Who spoke personally to Abraham? Well, Yahweh did. More than likely, it was Christ. And so you have God personally interviewing, as it were, his spokesperson, Abraham. But if we're going to look at the prophet par excellence, who is it? It's Moses. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Deuteronomy 34.10. Turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy 34.10. I want you to see that Moses was regarded as the prophet par excellence of the Old Covenant, obviously being the mediator of the Old Covenant, the one who led Israel out of Egyptian captivity. Listen to what it says of Moses in Deuteronomy 34.10. It says, Since that time, no prophet, again, Navi, has risen in Israel like Moses, whom Yahweh knew face to face. So there was no prophet like Moses. Now, the reason why that's so important that we get that down from Deuteronomy 34.10 is because remember earlier in Deuteronomy 18, Moses himself prophesied that there would be a prophet like him that God would raise up from the ranks of Israel. And if the people of God wouldn't listen to him, it would be required of him. Now, we know from the Mount of Transfiguration that this new prophet is Christ. And the reason that's important is we see then that Christ is the one who ultimately supersedes that of Moses. There was never a a prophet like Moses, but yet Moses says there's going to be a prophet like him. And if you don't listen to him, it's going to be required of you. Well, who's that? Well, it's Jesus Christ. The Mount of Transfiguration affirms that because there was a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him a combination of Deuteronomy 18.15 and Psalm 2.7, okay? So it's very important that we realize that Moses is the prophet of the Old Covenant par excellence. There's none like him. Now, from there, we know in the book of Judges, God sends a prophet while the Israelites are being oppressed by the Midianites, so they're not without a prophet there. But when we really see another prophet come on the scene of big, big renown would be Samuel. We see him come on the scene. He's confirmed to be prophet in 1 Samuel 3. And think about Prophet Nathan. You have him uh, speaking truth to power, as it will, to, remember, to David. Do you remember when Nathan the prophet said, you're the man, David? Remember that? So you have Nathan, but you ultimately have David come on the scene. Now, remember, David is called a prophet. We certainly know him as a king. But in Acts chapter 2, remember Peter at Pentecost? He says regarding Psalm 1610, the holy one would not see decay. He says that David, being a prophet, knew that God was speaking not of him, but of the Messiah, that he being a prophet. So the apostle Peter himself calls David a prophet. So it's interesting is David is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. He's a prophet and he's a king. And he reigns from where? Jerusalem. Where does the greater David rule from when he comes? Jesus. He rules from Jerusalem. He's a priest in the order of Melchizedek, ultimately. He's a prophet par excellence, and there's no greater king. And so you see how David then foreshadows the greater David. Prophet, yes, 
but foreshadowing the work of the greater prophet to come, Jesus Christ. Think about Elijah. What kind of prophet was Elijah? Well, he's one who calls down fire. Again, challenging the prophets of Baal, whoever answers by fire, he is God. And Elijah called down fire, not just once, remember, but twice. And so the, Elijah was regarded, besides Moses, as the pinnacle of the prophets. And that's why on the Mount of Transfiguration, who is with Jesus? It's Moses and Elijah. And so the image then is you have the law and the prophets, the two witnesses. Everything is going to be established by two witnesses. Who is established by two witnesses to be the spokesman for God? Jesus is. Because you have Moses and Elijah. Okay, And remember, of course, Peter makes the mistake. He's going to build a little booth for all of them. And he speaks presumptuously. And when he looks up again, it's only Christ. This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. So again, Elijah, very important, obviously, Elisha. But then I'm just going to fast forward to you have the prophets. And I'm thinking of Isaiah and Joel, uh, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Nahum, Habakkuk, etc., etc., all the way to Malachi. But ultimately, who comes on the scene is the God-man himself, Jesus, the Christ. And he speaks for God. And we're going to see this in Hebrews, as I'll show you in just a moment. Okay? But at the same time, we have a contrast. We have false prophets. And there's false prophets with the people of God that go all the way through history. Think about it. You had the false prophets of Baal. Wasn't there a showdown before the, between the false prophets of Baal and Elijah? Yes. You have the false prophets, remember, in 1 Kings 22, who lead wicked Ahab into battle. So there's all of these false prophets through history, and they're going to culminate, and here's my big point, in the Antichrist, or I should actually put up there, the false prophet, because he reigns with Antichrist. So you're going to have all the false prophets culminate in the false prophet. You have all the true prophets culminate in the prophet par excellence, Jesus Christ. That's what we have to see, I think, history going towards. So ultimately, there's one spokesman for God. It's Christ or it's the Antichrist. It's either Christ or the false prophet. And everyone who speaks under Christ is an apostle and prophet. And our job as believers is to be able to discern the difference. The biggest error that occurs in the church is not being able to discern who speaks for God. Remember Bob gave a message um, probably a year ago when he said the only stopgap to paganism is the word of God. But if we don't know who speaks for God, we're dead in the water. I remember so many times I'd be debating with Roman Catholics, and when I would show them that salvation is by faith alone and Christ alone, all by grace alone, you know what books they'd often try to appeal to? The apocryphal works. They'd appeal to apocryphal works. Now, what's the problem with that? Those weren't true spokesmen for God, were they? There was no prophet in Israel during that 400-year intertestamental period. So what's the big debate between Rome and Protestants? It's who speaks for God. What's the canon? If it's as we say it is, Genesis to Revelation, then they have no leg to stand on. So again, I want you to see that that's the big battle. Who is it that speaks for God? And so there's a need, therefore, to judge prophecy, and Jesus tells us as much. Let me show you what he says here. In Matthew 7, 15 through 20, he says, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So stop there. He's talking about the source. If you have a good tree, you're going to have a good product or good fruit. That's his point. He says in verse 17, So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Now, here's what I would submit to you. The big issue is we have to judge prophets and teachers by their fruit. What is the fruit that we should be judging? And it's my contention, based on the Old Testament, that the fruit is primarily doctrine and deeds. So if you're going to judge a prophet or a teacher by the way there aren't any prophets today and we'll be laying that out but if someone is claiming to be teaching for god we have to look at their doctrine and their deeds and i think a passage that would have been in jesus mind as he spoke these words in matthew would have been jeremiah chapter 23 now in jeremiah chapter 23 jeremiah is rebuking the prophets the false prophets who led israel astray And the way they led Israel astray was by false doctrine, saying peace, peace, when there was no peace. 
and their false deeds, encouraging wickedness and living wicked lives. So what's interesting is if we looked at a teacher and we say, well, you know what, their life doesn't match up, we should really, we can still judge their teaching and say, well, that's either biblical or non-biblical. But in the scriptures, if you really believe, you act on it. And if you have right doctrine, it leads to right deeds, et cetera, et cetera. They go hand in hand. And I want to show you how this plays out in Jeremiah 23, 13 through 14. Jeremiah said this, he says, Moreover, among the prophets of Samaria, that would be the northern ten tribes, I saw an offensive thing. They prophesied by Baal and led my people astray. Now stop there. Notice what I have highlighted red there is a doctrinal issue. The doctrinal issue is that these false prophets led people not to Yahweh but to Baal. That's a doctrinal issue. That's bad fruit. That's, if you're going to judge that prophet, you'd say that's a bad, that's a bad tree because the fruit that he's bearing is doctrine that leads us away from the true Christ to Baal, to a false god, away from Yahweh. Verse 14, he says, Also among the prophets of Jerusalem, I have seen a horrible thing. Now here comes their deeds. The committing of adultery and walking in falsehood. And they strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one has turned back from his wickedness. All of them have become to me like Sodom and their inhabitants like Gomorrah. Now what was Sodom and Gomorrah known for? Their sexual immorality. And so notice you have the deeds of the false prophets are lining up with their doctrine. You lead people away from the true God, you act on it. So both doctrine and their deeds are important. And we have evidence of this, I think, even in the grammar. Notice he says he saw an offensive thing. And the first thing he begins with, again, is the false doctrine. But notice he also has an also. That's a consecutive vav in the Hebrew. It can be just simply rendered and. But it shows you it's not just this, it's also and that. Does everyone see what I'm saying? And so what's the issue with the false prophets is bad doctrine, bad deeds. And so when Jesus is talking about judging the prophets by their fruit, I think that that's how we should define it. Now, as I say that, what's very interesting is you and I are living in a time period where there aren't any true prophets. The apostles and prophets are off the scene. Now, I'm going to prove that in just a moment. But what I want you to see that we're primarily to refute false teaching, therefore. And I want to show you evidence that even the apostle Peter saw that as a category. Turn your Bibles, if you will. To 2 Peter chapter 1. We'll begin in verse 16 through 21. I'm sorry, 2 Peter chapter 1. Verses, we'll start at verse 16. And I'm just going to kind of read, this is a chunk, but I want to read it all together. And then I'm going to go actually into chapter 2. And I'll, I'll kind of make a conclusion and we'll move on. Again, the focus here in 2 Peter, as you can see, is on false teachers. And I'll explain why. The, um, before I read this, when Peter's writing this epistle, the false teachers were saying that the apostles were wrong, that this Jesus isn't coming back, that they had the eschatology all goofed up, and therefore there'd be no judgment, and they could live any way they wanted, and they were encouraging others. So they had bad doctrine, bad deeds. They acted on what they believed. Well, Peter has to refute that. Now, how can he say that we have our eschatology right, Jesus is coming back? Well, you'll see how he proves it. It's very interesting. Paul, or Peter, excuse me, says this. 2 Peter 1.16, he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now stop there. Notice in verse 16, the power and coming. The term coming there is parousia. That term is exclusively used not for the first advent, but the second advent. In fact, there's a very interesting entry in the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. And what it says is that parousia was so tightly taught to the imminent coming of Christ, that is his return, that the New Testament writers dared not use it for his first advent, lest the two be confused. And so we know what Peter's talking about here was making known not the first advent, but the second advent. That's what he's talking about. That's the debate. The false teachers say, this Christ isn't coming. Remember, when you get to 2 Peter 3, where is his coming? Remember, they're scoffers, right? Everything's gone on as it always, that's their argument. Peter's refuting that here. He says, we weren't following myths when we made known to you the second advent. That's what he's getting at. So what does he say? He says, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Does everyone see that in verse 16? I'm sorry, I don't have it on the screen, but everyone see that in your Bible? 
Okay? Now, the reason that's significant is the eyewitness of his majesty is where? It's on the Mount of Transfiguration. Okay? So then he continues, verse 17, he says, For when he, that's Jesus, received honor and glory from, the, from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made by him, made to him, excuse me, by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Now that's what we were just talking about earlier. Combination Deuteronomy 18.15, Psalm 2.7. Psalm 2.7 talks about the beloved son that he had been begotten, well, after that, it talks about how the nations are given to him as an inheritance. So stop there for a moment. What Peter's deducing is, well, wait a minute. God the Father is speaking to us from the mountaintop, saying, this is the son who has the inheritance of the nations. What he reasons is, well, he's not reigning over the nations now physically. Therefore, he has to come back. That's the authentication of his eschatology. He knows Christ has to come back. Why? Because he has the nations as his inheritance. That's why he's telling you this. So he says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Verse 18, he says, and we ourselves heard this utterance. We were there, he says, made from heaven and we were with him on the holy mountain. So what's the result of this then? Verse 19, so we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. That's until the messianic age comes. I think that's what it's a reference to. Verse 20 says, But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Stop there. Notice the issue isn't the source of Scripture. Some would say, well, there's no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own speaking. That is, it's, it's not a matter of the prophet. The prophet can't speak forth his own prophecy. But that's not the issue here. I think the NASB gets it exactly right when it says there's no prophecy of Scripture as a matter of one's own interpretation. The issue that Peter was wrestling with was not false prophets who give Scripture, but false teachers who interpret Scripture. Do you see the difference? And what he's saying is you can't have just any old interpretation. Well, there goes the whole postmodern movement. I was just talking to my brother-in-law, a postmodern. I hope he listens to this. A couple of weeks ago, and I I lay out some biblical doctrines. Well, that's just your interpretation. I had a a dear, uh, my uh, sister-in-law said the same thing to me one day. And I said to her this. She works for a business. She says, well, your interpretation is your interpretation of the Bible. And I said, you work in a very important business where you have multi-million dollar quotes that are going back and forth. And if someone goofs up and they don't get the product right or they get the amount way wrong, do you say, well, you're entitled to your own interpretation? <laughs> you ever have a, uh, a waitress come to you and she says your hamburger is seven ninety five, And you say, well, that's just your interpretation. <laughs> right? We don't get away with it, do we? Bob taught me years ago Francis Schaeffer. Francis Schaeffer talked about this. He said, you know, all these people on the planet, they act rationally all day long. Then they go into church and they all of a sudden they become irrational. So they live by knowing language. They stop at red lights. They go at green lights. But all of a sudden when they come into the church, they become imbeciles. We can't know. We can't know. We can't know. And I mean that literally. They can't know anything. Well, dear ones, we can know from language. Okay, And what Peter's saying is you're not entitled to your own interpretation. Our interpretation is correct. Why? Because we heard the Father say. He authenticated it. There's a power of being there. And that's the significance of the apostles and prophets. They were authenticated by God because he spoke to them. Now, does he speak to us directly that way? No, but he spoke to them. My, uh, my grandpa Dalma was a bricklayer. And years ago, this is many, many years ago, in the 1960s, I believe, he was doing a job and he was a a tank driver in Patton's army. Uh, he drove a Sherman tank, I believe. It was actually a tank destroyer, disregard. But anyway, he's working on this job, and he was stayed after the war as an interpreter because he could speak Dutch, which was close enough to German, that they kept him on as an interpreter. Well, he saw the death camps, and he told us that he saw the bodies stack up like cordwood in the smell for miles. It was horrific. And he had a guy that came onto his job one day and he said, oh, this guy was an anti-Semite, and my, my grandpa never knew it. And so all of a sudden, this guy comes up to him. He says, well, you know, that Holocaust never happened. And my, my grandpa looked at him, and he says, Jack, 
He says, you've worked for me before and I'll use you again, but here's what you have to do. If you ever want to work for me again, you have to change that view. He says, because I was there. You see, there's a power in being there, isn't there? There was an eyewitness account. That's exactly what Peter's saying. Don't tell us we got it wrong. We were there. And so they had it right. And so that's why you and I can absolutely be confident, dear brothers and sisters, this Christ is coming again. Peter and the apostles were not wrong. Okay? Now, shift ahead then to 2 Peter 2.1. Let me show you something very interesting. 2 Peter 2.1. He makes a, a, slight, a slight distinction here. Peter does. Notice he goes on to say, but false prophets also arose among the people. Now, stop there. When he says the false prophets also arose, that's in the aorist. It's an aorist indicative, meaning that happened in the past. Okay, now, what past time is Peter referring to? I'm not exactly sure. It's a time period, obviously, that would be in keeping with when the prophets are still around. But I think Peter and the apostles know that when they're off the scene, the spokesmen for God are gone, there aren't any more apostles and prophets. Because notice how he shifts. He says, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be future tense of Amy, there will be also, what, false teachers among you. So notice the distinction he makes. He goes from prophets to false teachers. Why? Because there are no prophets now. Once the apostles and prophets are off the scene, you're going to have what? False teachers. And the false teachers are going to distort what? True interpretation. Now, if some joker comes along today and says, I'm a prophet for God, you just say, well, there aren't any prophets. That's an easy fix, isn't it? We had the guy who wrote The Harbinger. That was Bob and I, our big beef with Jonathan Cawney. He's claiming to be a prophet who reveals mysteries. Well, there are no prophets. So er, we're not listening to you. But the issue here are false teachers who have false interpretation of Scripture. Yeah. Uh, Nancy, hold on one second. We'll get it on tape here. My mom used to live at Augustana Homes, and I stopped in at a Bible study there when they were deciding which book they were going to study. Yeah. And the pastor, a female pastor, had held up the Apocrypha. She had a Catholic Bible. She said, this is what we're going to study for our Bible study. And the people, she, and she said, let's take a vote. Is that okay? And they didn't know the difference. They were like, okay, okay. Oh. And I just had, when you said offensive, that was so offensive to me. Yeah. I had to raise my hand and say, this will not do. That Absolutely is not the Bible. You. But it's everywhere. It it's is. Just well everywhere. said. Thank you, Nancy. Way to stand firm. And, um, you know, the apocryphal books, does everyone understand the apocryphal books that she's talking about? Apocryphal means hidden. And these were books that were written during the intertestamental period between Malachi and Matthew. Okay, between Malachi and the coming of John the Baptist. Well, even Flavius Josephus knew that there wasn't a prophet. He cites in his writings, I forget where it is in his writings, but he cites that the Israelites knew that there was no prophet in Israel. But let me show you a very handy way in refuting the apocryphal books. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to... Uh, do I have a Bible? <laughs> sorry, I think I would have one. Yeah, I'm sorry. Turn your Bibles to Romans 3. I've made this point before, but it's good in this context to see this point again. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's Romans 3. I think it's in verse 1. Yeah, Romans 3, 1. And I'm sorry, into, um, yeah, into verse 2. Notice what Paul says. Remember, he's been saying, look, it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile. The Jews, yes, had the law, but they couldn't obey it. Okay, but then he asked the question. He says, well, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? He says, much in every way. There is an advantage if you heed it. He says, to begin with, he says, Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, why does that refute the apocryphal books? Because the Apostle Paul, spokesman for Jesus Christ, said the Jews had the right canon. Remember, the debate between Roman Catholics and Protestants is not over the extent of the New Testament. We agree on that. It's the extent of the Old Testament. The apocryphal writings are part of their Old Testament. And what they have, would have you believe is that the Jews didn't have it right. That at the Council of Jamnia is always what they come to, is they decided on not enough books. Okay, so their genesis to Malachi was not complete without the apocryphal books. Well, that would be news to the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul said they had exactly the right books. Now, in the Jewish canon, remember it goes from Genesis to Chronicles. 
And I don't know why they did that. One theory was, remember what is Malachi? Do you remember what the last word in Malachi is? It's cursed. Exactly. Whoever said that? Who? Yeah, very good. Yeah, it's cursed. And so some thought, well, they didn't want to leave with a curse, right? So they ended up with Chronicles. I don't know if that's true. But the point is they go from Genesis to Chronicles, and you see that even in Jesus' words in Matthew 23. It says, remember, upon this generation, all the blood from righteous Abel to the son of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, will come upon this generation. He's mentioned in the book of Chronicles. So Jesus is giving the extent of the canon from Genesis to Chronicles, okay? And also he's giving a timeline as well. Okay, so the point being, brothers and sisters, is either the apostle is right, the Jews had the right canon, they had the very oracles of God, or the Pope is right, but they both can't be right. And so, yeah, that's a great way of refuting it. Go to Romans 3, 1 through 2 and say, you're telling me that Paul was wrong, that they didn't have the very oracles of God? Yeah. Um, I was going to say, just for, not, not that, you know, historical books have, any, you know, the Bible it trumps all and it's more yeah. to focus on all the Bible than, you know, anything else. But yeah. even Milford was telling me that the other day, you know, apocryphal uh, books, you know, it's interesting. Yeah. But, uh, focus on the Bible. But anyways, I was noting or I was noticing we were studying Daniel and it talked about the, the Greeks, the goat, the goat that represented and he was the one that hovered over. And then he was the one that came down and um, or he had power over the saints. And then it was by an act of God that he or that he was overcome, I think it said, somewhere in the later part. Anyways, I was thinking, I think that does represent the, um, the Maccabees. So, I, I mean, it, it was kind of, it seemed to be a, like a prophesied event, not that the Maccabees are prophets, but I thought it was kind of interesting that I didn't even know that that was you know, an event that was talked about. Yeah, and let me just say that two things there. One is there is, pro- there, it is profitable to read history, and you can learn history from some of these apocryphal writings, but there are mistakes in it. Um, for example... In the book of 1 Maccabees, we see the idea of um, giving um, alms for the dead, um, praying for the dead, etc. We see a works-based salvation. We see things that are aberrant. But we can say, you know what, we can learn some historical things that occurred. Um, We even, remember we used 1 Enoch to say that, yes, there seems to be at times where the apostles were aware of the writing, and they even affirmed that some of it was true, but it's only true as far as it goes. Um, the other issue, though, I would say is in the interpretation of Daniel, clearly in Daniel 11, all the way to verse 30, before verse 36, you have an allusion to that history that you're referring to. But then at verse 36, it turns to the future once again, because from 36 onward, there's never been a fulfillment in history of that, of what's being stated. And evidence of that is, you know, what's interesting, Eric, is remember in Daniel 9, you have the this antichrist, the lawless one who comes and he performs the abomination of desolation. Well, the apostle Paul says that's still in the future. We know, therefore, it can't be referring merely to the 167 BC desecration by Antiochus Epiphanes IV. He's looking forward to another lawless one, and it can't be the Romans who did it in 70 AD because they never set one up in the temple to claim to be God. And therefore, the only fulfillment possible in history would be still in the future. Does that make sense? Well, it, it does make sense that it, a future event will take place, but yeah. also it, it does make sense to me that it could potentially have been fulfilled, you know, not not the one Paul's talking about, but it seems to me that they're talking about a, a first one that, that's similar to the Antichrist here. Yeah, absolutely, and I agree with you, and that's exactly right. We see that in uh, Daniel 11. We also see, I think, allusions to that in Daniel 8. So you're exactly right, but you're right. Ultimately, it's going to be fulfilled in the future Antichrist. So the Antiochus Epiphanes IV is a foreshadowing of the future one. Absolutely. Well said. Thank you. Well, I'm sorry. You know what? We'll have to continue this next week, but here's what I want to leave you with. At the end of the day, what you and I have to do is we have to realize there are no modern prophets, and we'll talk about that. We'll prove that next time. But when it comes to judging teachers, we judge them by what? Their deeds. Their, or their, excuse me, their fruit, their doctrine and deeds. We judge them by their doctrine and deeds. And if we do that, and we stay with Scripture, God is going to... Oops, I'm sorry, I just dropped something. Nothing damaged. We will persevere. God uses the Scriptures to enable us as His people to persevere. Remember Jesus said that if possible, it would, these false signs and wonders would lead the elect astray. It's not possible, is it, for the elect to be led astray? Dear brothers and sisters, judge prophecy, judge teaching in light of Scripture. 
All right, let's end with prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word that you've not left us in darkness, but you've given us clear words that we can know and distinguish between Christ and Antichrist, between your prophets and false prophets. And we thank you, Lord, that you are promised to come again with your Son, that you've made this evidently clear to your apostles, and that we can be confident that there is a day that's coming when he's going to break forth through the clouds and take us home that this isn't pie-in-the-sky thinking, but it's what you've revealed and it's your promise. I pray, Lord, that you would give my brothers and sisters stamina in this world as we think upon these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.